You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's episode is the latest installment of our series on the history of science, Ottoman or otherwise, curated by Nir Shafir. Uh, For a complete listing of those episodes, we recommend you check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll find a lot of uh, conversations related to the history of science and medicine in the Ottoman Empire and beyond. And in fact, today's conversation is a very important part of that series because we're actually going to uh, discuss uh, the heart, uh, really the beginning of a, of a new form of uh, medical science uh, and its rise during the late 19th century uh, and its uh, relationship to the Middle East. Of course, we're talking about uh, bacteriology and the revolutionary germ theory, uh, the work of Louis Pasteur and everything that came with that moment. Our guest today on the program is uh, somebody who's really qualified to speak on the subject, uh, a scholar with a long uh, history of experience working on the history of medicine in the Middle East and beyond, Anne-Marie Moulin. She's Director of Research at CNRS in Paris. Anne-Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be recording with you. Actually, thank you for hosting us in your apartment um, in Paris, which is a very fitting place to be uh, discussing today's topic on the history of the Pasteur Institute's uh, and their international network. Uh, our listeners will be familiar with the, the figure of Louis Pasteur and his, um, his, his various contributions to the development of the field of medicine, of microbiology, and, and, and such. We've all heard of pasteurization, for example, uh, the process by which um, biological materials can be preserved. And, uh, but in addition to um, these sort of... Uh, works in the in the field of science, what we're actually going to be talking about mostly is uh, institutions and the context of science in which they're practiced uh, during a period in which uh, medical science is really undergoing tremendous transformation. So Anne-Marie, I want to start off our conversation just introducing for the audience that's less uh, initiated in the topic, uh, giving a, a sense of the context of the rise of Louis Pasteur and the Pasteurians, uh, both in France and abroad. Um, in, in Bruno Latour's very uh, influential study of the Pasteurians, he states, this is a quote, most people would agree that with Pasteur, the medical art became a science. That's a very interesting way of putting it, that medicine was an art and then transformed into science. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, you know, if you agree with that statement or, or what, what, you know, if you could maybe briefly uh, summarize what changed about medicine, medicine with uh, the rise of the Pasteurians. I think there was uh, the expectation that work in the lab could lead to uh, magic transformations especially because the bacteria, which were being identified as the main Mm -hmm. cause of diseases, could be transformed, attenuated, Mm -hmm. turned into vaccine, and potentially opening the way to what Pasteur described as the eradication of diseases. Mm. It seems to be uh, uh, unlikely, but he did it. 
uh, as soon as 1881 mm-hmm. Humanity since uh, ages, mm-hmm. such as tuberculosis, plague, or other diseases, would disappear. Right. And it's, it's hard to imagine nowadays what, what boisterous claims these sounded like at the time, how uh, ambitious this sounded, the eradication of diseases that people, for example, take for granted and weren't even sure uh, could be treated with medicine. It was really quite a, quite a claim to a certain kind of power, right? He had made the demonstration, and I think that uh, Bruno Latour used uh, part of it for his demonstration. He had proved that in, uh, in domains uh, out of, of medicine, mm-hmm. uh, especially with uh, diseases in agriculture mm. and uh, veterinary diseases as yes. well. And he turned to medicine and immediately announced more or less that he would revolutionize medicine. Yeah. And... Uh, and that revolution actually was very successful in the sense of uh, becoming a dominant paradigm uh, within uh, Western and indeed glo- global medical science within a relatively short time period. Yes, but when you, when you read the announcement about the eradication of tuberculosis and plague, you mm-hmm. cannot help thinking that it was really a bold announcement yeah. which has not turned true. Right. Absolutely. And, and a lot of our episodes in our series on history of science have, have really, you know, sought in, in the way that history of science does to demystify um, wh- whether it's medical science or other forms of science, you know, uh, forms of inquiry that uh, purport to set forth universal truths and really look at exactly uh, the context uh, uh, in which uh, science is practiced. For example, Pasteur had many uh, competitors who were also uh, making such claims at the time. Yeah, but I think he also initiated the the fashion of uh, revolutions in medicine. Yeah. Since these announcements regularly, as soon as there are innovations in Mm -hmm. medicine, people are claiming for revolution. But we are... We have now so many revolutions. We had the revolution of molecular biology. We had a, um, the idioma of um, revolutions mm-hmm. has become so, uh, has permeated all the, the fields of medicine. And of course, it means that we no longer feel the enthusiasm because we have heard so many times about revolutions. Sure, of course. So it's the last revolution and the last one uh, we are now, of course, uh, waiting for the next one. Sure, yes. And it's interesting, you know, to use the term revolution, which usually has a political connotation, uh, and to maybe linger a little bit more on Pasteur and the Pasteur Institute in, in France. I mean, it's striking each each uh, region of Paris maybe is marked by symbols of a particular political era, whether, you know, the 18, 1848 or, or what have you, depending on the neighborhood. There's a whole neighborhood of, of Paris that is completely um, dominated by symbols uh, related to uh, what, you know, almost the cult of scientific medicine surrounded Louis Pasteur. Of course, the area around the, the Pasteur Institute, where you've worked quite a bit, where many researchers on the history of medicine will at least visit. Yeah, but the paradox is that um, if um, the essence of medical progress is revolution, mm-hmm. it means 
that we are waiting for the next innovations. Yes. And if we are waiting for innovations, it means that the truth, the medical truth of today will yes. be the mistake or the error of tomorrow. Right. And so the epistemology of this medical revolution is something that is still um, very unsafe. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, and it was and it was perhaps uh, extremely um, volatile when carried to other, say, cultural or environmental contexts within which uh, medical doctors, Pasteurians were very soon practicing through this network of Pasteur Institutes uh, that we're going to talk about today. Coming to the network, in fact, it's because at the beginning, Pasteur initiated a treatment a vaccine, which was in fact a very bizarre kind of vaccine because it was a, a, a therapeutic vaccine. Mm-hmm. In fact, given after the onset of the disease. And um, he announced that uh, the institute in Paris, which was uh, soon to be created, mm-hmm. would be enough for uh, bitten patients, at least in France and maybe in Europe, but very quickly he was aware of the fact that it was impossible to have a cure for all people from all over the world. Right. And you're referring to the rabies vaccine, yeah, isn't I'm that correct? Yeah, I'm talking about rabies. Yes, exactly. So the, uh, the first move was to send people who would come to be trained in Paris mm-hmm. and would return to their own countries and would develop an institute for uh, the production of... Uh, anti-rabies vaccine. Mm -hmm. And in these early years, there were a number of Pasteur Institutes, Mm -hmm. including in the United States. You have a whole list of these these institutes which were not official. Mm -hmm. There was one in New York. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. one of the most famous, but uh, I, um, I found when I looked at it more closely that in fact there were at least six or seven uh, mm-hmm. small pastor institutes I see. which appeared in the United States and disappeared very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. In other countries, it was something which must last until now. Yeah. The, it's interesting to mention that uh, the first two institutes would, would last until now were one in uh, Vietnam, in Indochina, in the French Indochina, and the second one, it was in uh, 1891, Mm -hmm. in Saigon, Um, now Ho Chi Minh Ville, and the second one was in Tunisia, in Tunis, in North Africa, in uh, 1893. I see. But interestingly, uh, of course, it was in the colonial empire. But the, these early institutions were not only uh, in the French colonial empire, mm-hmm. and that is interesting for us, because precisely in this period, yeah. before the First World War, we had uh, a similar establishment mm-hmm. in Istanbul due to the initiative of the Ottoman Sultan. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, and really, the way you described it there, it reminds me of uh, a question submitted by our own Sechil Yilmaz, who wasn't able to participate in this interview, but who, who wanted to ask about 
sort of, you know, you mentioned the magic and the spectacle of Pasteur, you know, with, with the rabies vaccine, creating these spectacles that would demonstrate before people's eyes the efficacy of his uh, science. But the structure of the Pasteur Institutes, which, which were independent, right, independent from the French state, which in the late 19th century context is a much bigger deal than it would be today, but this sort of like non-state power functioning almost like missionaries, which kind of going out into different parts of the world, including areas where the French are not, with these upstart sort of frontier uh, medical institutions, it's very striking to um, consider the almost like religious symbolism embedded in this kind of, in the practice of the Pasteurians. I believe you've referred to a Pasteur as a, as a sort of saint, isn't that right? In in your work, uh, and when you see his crypt at the at the museum, the Pasteur uh, uh, museum, which I recommend that people who visit Paris and want to learn about the history of medicine do check out that museum. There's this sort of um, shrine with murals that was created to to commemorate Pasteur's achievements, and uh, you'll you'll have to check it out or look it up online. So, but what do you think about this uh, parallel between uh, the Pasteurians and their international network and sort of the, the comparison with, say, missionary institutions that had been operating earlier, Jesuits and these types of things, maybe in the centuries before? Well, I think it was uh, this uh, topic was consciously developed by the early members of the Pasteurian family. Mm-hmm. They, I wouldn't say invent, but uh, invented, but almost some sentences which uh, took the uh, meaning far beyond the, the, the simple words. For example, Nicole, Charles Nicole, mm-hmm. meeting Pasteur in the staircase. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pasteur was already very old and uh, he would die, I think, uh, the year after. And uh, he said, he stopped and then said to young Nicole, uh, il faut travailler. Vous devez travailler. You, you, you have to work. Yes. So it's a very simple sentence. But yeah. after that, it had a kind of echo and everybody repeated this, uh, this sentence. Another example like is... Like the sayings uh, of a prophet, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Like a hadith. Yeah, exactly. And uh, another example, much more striking, is uh, that Pasteur was supposed to be uh, sitting um, uh, under a tree mm-hmm. in uh, the beautiful park where he spent some of his time uh, at the end of his life. And he said to, he would have said, it's Nicole who tells the story, yeah. to the disciples around him, go and teach all nations. Yeah, And it's clear that you have a kind of a gospel uh, right. echo from the gospel. Right. So... Uh, the, the idea that uh, the Pasteurian family was not only a family, but almost something close to a religious order, yeah. the Tarikra. Yeah. And uh, it has been repeated by many people that the link between the master and the disciples mm-hmm. was something like in a, in a Tarikra, mm-hmm. between uh, Murshed and uh, Murid, right. and uh, also between the members. Mm-hmm. That they they were linked by a pact, right? Uh, which uh, which would constrain them to permanent work. Mm-hmm. Which is strange is that it was during the Third Republic in France, which uh, was the which saw a major clash mm-hmm. between the church and the academy and the universities, and yet 
pasteur. Uh, we discuss, we still discuss whether he was or not a believer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the opinions are very contradictory. Sure. But precisely because everybody could invent a pastor of one's own who suited his personal beliefs and uh, preferences. Right. It means that pastor could be welcomed by the French society from the right to the left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the first institutes were created in the colonial empire. Mm-hmm. But yet, they were also created outside, out of the sphere yeah, of the colonial empire. Politics, yeah. And uh, a good example is it not, of course, in Turkey, but is in Greece and in Iran, where the pastor institutes were created after the First World War. Mm. And uh, the pastor institutes still exist Uh, in Tehran, in Iran, mm-hmm. and it survived, which is interesting. When you enter the, the, the office of the director in Tehran, yeah. you can see Khomeini's picture on one side and, and pastor, pastor on the other side. <laughs> That's incredible. And you can gamble whether in t- 10 years, I think that there will still be Pasteur, but no longer <laughs> Khomeini. Well, Pasteur would maybe want us to think that. I mean, considering the, the role that science is playing in, in uh, society during the late 19th century and, and how it's sort of starting to supplant uh, religion as the, as the source of, of, of truth in, in some fields. Or there's definitely a, a battle taking place there during the late 19th century to see how the practice of the early Pastorians mirrors the practice, practices of, um, of a religious order uh, is kind of a, a fascinating um, testament to you know, the importance of studying science in its contexts. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Anne-Marie Moulin talking about uh, the history of uh, the Pasteurians, the Pasteur Institutes, and especially the international network of Pasteur Institutes uh, that had a real presence in the history of the Middle East from the late 19th century onward. Um, of course, we won't cover everything related to the history of the Pasteur Institutes, but if you want to find out more, I want to remind you that we have a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll find a very sizable reading list and also gain access to some of the other relevant uh, episodes pertaining to today's discussion. I do want to uh, list off for our listeners some of the bona fides of uh, Anne-Marie Moulin, because she's got a, uh, a really diverse set of work. She's both a philosopher a medical doctor specializing in uh, tropical medicine and parasitology. And in addition to that, she's a historian who's published uh, numerous works that we have listed on our website. A few that we want to draw your attention to is an important work, Le Dernier Langage de Médecine. It's in French, but it's about the history of immunology from Pasteur all the way to AIDS in the present-day context. Uh, another book, Médecin de France, looks into the subject of royal physicians, um, physicians who accompanied kings and princes uh, in, in history. Uh, in addition, for the, those who are working on the Middle East and the Islamic world, some publications include a, an edited volume entitled Perilous Modernity, which is about the history of medicine in the Ottoman Empire in the modern Middle East. Uh, and finally, a translation into French of the very famous and very important uh, letters of uh, Lady Mary Montagu uh, from the 18th century, someone who basically introduced um, vaccination or inoculation practices uh, to uh, Western publics. Uh, 
which you know practices that originated in the Ottoman Empire. So that's a that's a very important work. So on Marie, we were just talking about the context of the rise of Pasteur and the Pasteurians and sort of uh, aspects of religion, uh, maybe politics at play in in um, some of the dynamics um, that uh, we observe in sort of the, the growth of this movement that, as you, I think, quite rightly described, uh, is uh, sort of driven by disciples. Uh, which who disseminate out into the rest of the world and, and sort of spread uh, the institutional infrastructure of the Pasteur Institutes. And you've already mentioned that there were um, Pasteur Institutes all over the French colonial world and well beyond the French colonial world. Uh, so for the remaining of our discussion, I'd like to focus on the ones maybe of most relevant for our, relevance for our audience, which is those that are in the Middle East, and specifically the early Pasteur Institutes uh, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, and in North Africa as well. So let's start with the Ottoman Empire. Maybe I can set it up a little. Um, under the reign of Abdul Hamid II, a sultan who is not very well known, who is not normally known for his uh, particularly inviting behavior towards uh, foreign institutions, we know of his position towards missionaries, uh, you actually have a, a, an institute of bacteriology set up right within the old city walls of Istanbul uh, under um, the, the leadership of the Pastorians. Why don't you uh, give us a little introduction uh, to the history of that bacteriology uh, facility? In fact, it was not born in a void. Uh, the first symptoms of it was that the Sultan Abdul Hamid, who had donated uh, some money yeah. uh, for the creation of the Pasteur Institute by uh, next to the Tsar of Russia and yeah. other important people. Uh, in fact, he sent students to Paris to be trained in the new method of inoculation of rabies to mm -hmm. protect uh, yeah. from the disease. And uh, at least three people came from Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Uh, among whom was uh, Zoiros Pasha, sure. the most famous one. And he returned to Istanbul to create a center for treatment of rabies. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the second step was when uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid asked uh, Pasteur to, to send him a disciple, uh, firstly to teach microbiology, at the, the Faculty of Medicine in Istanbul, mm -hmm. and second, to open uh, an institute of research on infectious diseases mm -hmm. in the capital, in the Ottoman capital, especially because there was an epidemic of cholera, yes. which was more or less endemic at that time, and uh, Chantemesse, who was... Uh, a micro clinician and a microbiologist close mm -hmm. to Pasteur came on a short mission yeah. to investigate the, the problems of hygiene, yeah. which were endemic in the capital. Sure. And so you mentioned cholera, which of course is, it sweeps through the Ottoman Empire a number of times during some of the global pandemics and even, you know, in other times. 
you mentioned Russia is also involved. Russia also another place where cholera is certainly a big issue. And, and European powers, um, the British and others, were even interested in the issue of cholera in the Ottoman Empire because of its potential to spread beyond the Ottoman Empire uh, and especially, you know, involving uh, the Hajj. Um, pilgrims. This is something we've talked about in a previous episode. So there's like a real practical reason why the Ottoman Empire should be at the center of bacteriology at the time because of the prominence of cholera and its relationship to the Ottoman Empire. On the other hand, you mentioned rabies, which of course is, is deadly during that time period, like highly deadly. <laughs> it's hard to survive rabies. Um, but it doesn't strike one as maybe one of the Ottoman Empire's biggest problems in the late 19th century. So beyond practical concerns, what was the Ottoman government, Abdul Hamid II's interest in bacteriology? Is this linked to uh, a modernization project of some kind, in your opinion? Some uh, greater uh, political or ideological project in the Ottoman Empire? When you, you know, when uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid opened his reign, you have to remember that... Uh, there were many expectations. And I think in his address to his people, he mentioned the fact that uh, uh, science was very important in Islam. Yeah. You know that you have to look for science min al-Mahdi al from the cradle to the grave. Yeah. And also that you have to pursue science even uh, very far away from the place where you are, mm -hmm. even in China, that's a famous hadith about the pursuit of science, and I think it's important to remember it, because Islam is so often equated with uh, fanaticism and other things that it's good to remember mm -hmm. that science is uh, per se important. So in his opening address, at the beginning of his reign, Sultan Abdul Hamid mentioned the fact that... Uh, Science had been a very important thing in Islam, is and, mm -hmm. and that the Sultan, as a caliph, mm -hmm. had to maintain, or even more than that, to revive the sure. spirit, the scientific spirit. Mm -hmm. So I think the enterprise was not only uh, aiming at restoring good conditions in the environment in the capital, but also mm -hmm. to develop science mm -hmm. as a tool for modernization yeah. of the empire. Yeah. I mean, uh, under Abdul Hamid is when we see the real growth of the um, Ottoman school systems as well, for example, sort of a related development. Uh, in, 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 in her research, Sechel Yilmaz refers to the bacteriology, um, the, the Pastorian bacteriology in the Ottoman capital under Sultan Abdul Hamid as sort of a franchised science that they were trying to... Um, uh, get a piece of the, the Pasteur franchise that was quickly spreading throughout the world. So maybe you could tell us what were what was the Bacteriology Institute in Istanbul doing during those uh, years of the its first years in in uh, the late 19th century? At least theoretically, like uh, all Pasteur institutes in other countries as mm -hmm. well, it had to identify the main bacteria as sources of infectious diseases in the town. Mm -hmm. And for that, he needed simple things, microscopes and mm -hmm. media to cultivate the bacteria. Yeah, the facilities were certainly very few. And uh, Nicole spent a lot of time complaining about the lack of, uh, 
of uh, specialized attendants. Maurice Nicole. Maurice Nicole. Who's what uh, relation to Charles Nicole? Oh, the, the brother. Yes. The elder brother. Yes. The elder brother. He was also more famous than Charles mm -hmm. at the time. And he was uh, interested by the chemistry mm -hmm. of antigens. And he had uh, an idea of bacteria as being what he called a mosaic of antigens. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because for the modern mind, it's very clear to imagine bacteria as a patchwork of antigens. And of course, now you have, uh, through the tools of mm -hmm. molecular biology, you have mm -hmm. to pick up uh, a few of these antigens in order to immunize yeah. without damaging the organism. Hmm. But it was uh, a completely theoretical view yeah. at the time. It was an idea of the mind, not an observation. Right. And so Maurice Nicole is actually sort of on the cutting edge of the, the Pasteurian science uh, in practicing uh, in Istanbul, not just for implementation, for example, testing, and, but actually developing uh, his science during his time there. He was interested in many of the rampant diseases of the time, mm -hmm. uh, exactly in the same way uh, Charles Nicole later in Tunis. I mean, it became interested in the epidemics mm -hmm. uh, coming from Mecca, mm -hmm. the Hajj you mentioned uh, pre uh, previously. And he was interested in uh, uh, rinderpest mm -hmm. among the cattle. Mm -hmm. He was interested in uh, Lashmania, the oriental sore, And that's very interesting because, as you know, uh, it's one of the very few parasitic diseases where you have a means of immunizing. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, we, we have not yet a vaccine, mm -hmm. a valuable vaccine against malaria, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, schistosomiasis is still expecting a vaccine. And we have all the other examples. But for Lashmaniasis, the cause of the oriental sore, Aleppo boil, yeah. uh, we have a method, a very crude method of immunization, which was described by travelers mm -hmm. in the 18th century. The, the two doctors, uh, Russell, who were consulates in uh, Aleppo, yeah. describe it. And uh, so Nicole was interested in mm -hmm. uh, these uh, in these Leishmania diseases, and uh, he certainly hoped to obtain a mm -hmm. vaccine, but did not do any real work on it. Mm -hmm. He was interested in all diseases raging around him. Mm -hmm. It means uh, an enormous task to face all these different yeah. Uh, epidemics. Yes, and in a very small facility. With very small facilities and uh, uh, no animals for experimentation. Hmm. And uh, very quickly became embroiled in quarrels with the embassy. And uh, he was not happy about his work. And finally, he left... Uh, Mm -hmm. when he had the sense that the French embassy did not support him enough. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, so maybe we could talk more about the diplomatic aspect of this. This is, a, this is essentially a French institution uh, under the aegis of the, of the Ottoman Empire, but it's not, French in the sense, it's not a French state institution, right? It's, a, it's essentially 
uh, a foreign doctor um, operating under Sultan Abdulhamid II, but clearly mediated through the diplomatic connection. So, There is a paradox about the Pasteurian institution, uh, which is clearly visible since the early days. Mm-hmm. When Pasteur wanted to create the Pasteur Institute, an institute which would have uh, his name uh, later, mm-hmm. um, he, make, he made it clear that it would not be a stately institution, yeah. but, uh, and that it would be sponsored by the, gen- the citizens' generosity. There was a call for yeah. subscribing, and this call was uh, answered by all layers of the population and all political parties from the right to the left. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the state, in fact, offered a certain amount of money. So we can consider that the Pasteur Institute at the end of the 19th century was um, a first episode of what we call now the private-public partnership, mm-hmm. PPP. <laughs> exactly. And it had been meant as part of the Pasteurian doctrine until today. While it is obvious that the state is supporting to a large extent, the Pasteur Institute in Paris, part of the, uh, let's say, two-thirds of the staff is paid by the government. I see. But the doctrine of we are a private institution working for the sake of the nation and for for the public good has been maintained until now. It is a private institution. And that's a, a natural way of trying to prevent, say, meddling from the state and slowing down things. But when, when of course, Pasteurians are operating in foreign contexts, let's say in the Ottoman Empire, uh, one must imagine that politically they have to rely on uh, the French state. It is a very flexible doctrine. Mm-hmm. It can accommodate many situations. And in a very skillful way, the leaders of the Pasteur Institute have always played with this doctrine. Mm. They are public when it suits them, and they are private when it is better. Interesting. So our listeners are probably wondering, you know, during this late Ottoman period in in the uh, Bacteriology Institute, what some of the accomplishments were, if there were any discoveries or uh, early successes of the Pasteurians that kind of established their place uh, in the Ottoman Empire among the, the medical science and whatnot. I think that contrary to Charles Nicole, the brother in Tunis, who discovered toxoplasma mm-hmm. and who also discovered the, the vector of typhus, mm-hmm. uh, namely the, the Laos, uh, Maurice Nicole did not discover any important thing in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. But he made a blueprint for those who would come after him mm-hmm. Uh, the institute was supposed to investigate the main raging diseases in the capital, identify the the agents of these diseases, mm-hmm. and hopefully to provide a vaccine and a serum yeah. uh, as a therapy. So uh, the foundations were laid, but I think he had no uh, impressive achievement during the time and he probably returned from Istanbul with uh, a lot of bitterness. Sure. 
and and on the other hand, we might we might imagine that you know, in terms of again, we talked about this sort of the movement, the Pastorian movement, that uh, despite any lack of major discoveries, that uh, presumably some of the doctors in the Ottoman Empire, you mentioned Zeros Pasha and some of the early ones, but the people who had contact with the institute would um, sort of become converted uh, to this uh, scientific. Uh, trend at the time? I think we have to look for elsewhere. Yeah. I think we have, for example, to look uh, at the students who went on going to the Paris Institute. We have a whole list of the people, of the students. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, we never say students in the Pasteur Institute. We say uh, élèves, pupils. Yeah. Uh, and it's something which makes a difference between a medical faculty and the institute. Pupils uh, mean something, of course, uh, much, much closer between the master and the pupil mm -hmm. than between the professor in yeah. a medical school and uh, the student. And uh, each year on the register, you can see the registre, you can see names. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have just the first names because at that time there mm -hmm. was no family name. And we can see that uh, every year you had a constant flow of students from the Ottoman Empire who came to Paris mm -hmm. and it would be interesting to identify them and to know what they did when yeah. they returned to the... In fact, there are, I think there are a lot of things to be investigated in that yeah. perspective. Yeah, it would be interesting to know, for example, how many were civilian doctors, how many were military doctors. And of course, you know, the names, doctors played such an important role in the political movements of the early 20th century in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, especially the rise of the Committee of Union and Progress. To understand if the doctors who are, and of course a lot of these doctors are probably Armenian and Greek as well coming to Paris, but to understand their relationship, uh, it, it would be very a, a fascinating avenue for research for uh, those who are out there looking for a topic. And I think we have a, an easy source for that. We have the newspapers, the medical mm -hmm. newspapers in the Ottoman Empire. I think it's an important source. And you have the Gazette Medical d'Orient yeah, sure. uh, with many issues. And you have uh, articles written in uh, various languages, staging from uh, Greek, mm -hmm to uh, Osman, uh, Ottoman, yeah. uh, Turkish, French, English, German. It was a really cosmopolitan medical journal yeah. published in Istanbul. Cosmopolitan like the Ottoman Empire itself. Exactly. Back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here once again with Anne-Marie Moulin talking about uh, the Pasteur Institute and uh, its global and international network. Uh, we just spoke a little bit about the uh, Ottoman context and the formation of a bacteriology institute in Ottoman uh, Istanbul. Uh, under the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid II, we talked about some of its activities, some of its impacts, and some of its lack of impacts. 
in uh, Amory, one of the places you mentioned that um, the Pastorians had maybe greater successes, we could say, in terms of developing their own science, uh, was in the North African context. Of course, by the time that Pasteur is operating, Algeria uh, and, and then soon after Tunisia uh, become uh, come under French rule, and there are uh, Pasteur institutes in those countries as well. As well. Uh, and we know, for example, from the history of, well, I know from the history of malaria, uh, that major discoveries in the... Um, in the field of the study of malaria, specifically identifying the parasite, actually occurred in the colonial context in French Algeria, not under a Pasteur Institute, but certainly with a doctor who is uh, relevant to this discussion. So maybe in, in talking about the Pasteur Institutes in North Africa during this early period, maybe you could um, tell us, you know, what is the relationship between what we know as colonial medicine and the Pasteurians, who again are not necessarily... Uh, affiliated with the French government or a colonial regime, yet have this sort of in-between public-private uh, status? Uh, there are three, even four, in fact, Pasteur Institutes in North Africa. Mm-hmm. But each one, each country, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, have a very d- different history. Yeah. Even if uh, uh, they were created... Uh, almost not exactly at the same time. Uh, the first one, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, Tunis in mm-hmm. 1893. But uh, Algiers succeeded Tunis, although the, the date itself is controversial because it was initiated by medical doctors in, in Algeria. But the... Uh, it was invested by Paris only in 1909 mm. by the Sergent brothers who came, who were born in Algiers, but came from Paris. Mm-hmm. And Morocco was later. But Morocco is also interesting because the first institute, the first Pasteur Institute was not uh, in the center of the country. It was located at Tangiers mm. on the coast. At, it's interesting because uh, Tangiers, it was before the uh, establishment of the French colony. Right. So each country has a very different sure. history. And uh, the, the most interesting is, of course, uh, the history of the Pasteur Institute in Tunis. Mm-hmm. Not only because Nicole was a prestigious figure yeah. and with his Nobel Prize, but because it was created officially by the Bay of Tunis. I see. It was not a property of the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And today, the directors of the Pasteur Institute like to recall that it was created by the Bay, that it was a property of the Tunisian state. Right. As opposed uh, to the colonial state, by exactly, the way. Exactly. Yeah. That you can forget about the the colonial period and that there is a f- striking continuity between its creation and the, uh, the present republic. And uh, that is a very fascinating narrative. It must be somewhat of a fiction. I mean, if we think about it in practical terms, but on the other hand, you said the Ottoman Empire had its own bacteriology institute under the Pasteurians, Tunis under the Bay, in Morocco also, I guess, independent of the uh, any, any colonial power. And, and also, I was struck by the fact that you said that in Algeria, 
the origins of the Pasteur Institute were comparatively late, considering the really strong French... I mean, Algeria is part of France at that point, like the land of France. It's not even a colony, really. It's its, it's, its own thing. So why was it so late in Algeria? It's mainly because it was uh, initiated by two doctors of the medical faculty of Algiers. Mm -hmm. uh, I remind you that uh, there was only one medical school in North mm -hmm. Africa until the independence, and the only one was in Algiers. And it was created at a very early period, in the middle of the 19th century. Yeah. And it's these doctors, ordinary doctors, who created the first institu Pasteur Institute mm -hmm. in Algiers. But the in um, in investiture the uh, officially the officialization officialization was given by pasteur in paris mm -hmm. only uh 15 years after i see and there was this uh, uh the, the 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 pioneers of the pasteur institute in algiers were put aside so that explained this long lack of time hmm is is there any reason for that You have uh, almost the same thing for uh, Tunis, because mm -hmm. firstly it was uh, Pasteur's own nephew who created the Pasteur Institute in Tunis. Mm -hmm. uh, he was, uh, I think, a very nice man and very clever, and he was uh, very enthusiastic about his new country, mm -hmm. and he described, he made a good description of the country, he got interested in the main diseases, but he was completely put aside by Charles Nicole when Charles Nicole came to Tunis in 1900, uh, in 1900. and it's uh, at this period that the Bay made the institution the institution official. Mm. So you know the there is a narrative, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and the narrative is very important. It um, embellishes, we can use the word. It gives a clear version of what otherwise might appear as a, uh, like Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare's life is made uh, full of noise and uh, <laughs> signifying nothing or something yeah. like that. It's exactly, the, the, I think, the case of the Pasteur Institute. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a tale of fury and noise, and uh, there is an official version. And historians until now have to f fight with this simplistic and uh, uh, embellished idea of uh, this narrative which has been transmitted from mm -hmm. generation to generation. Yeah. We have to, to dig out to find the, the true facts. So I guess the, the, the last question I'd like to ask on that subject is again returning to the question of colonial medicine as such in the historiography. We have this very robust historiography of a genre of medicine, let's say, uh, that's practiced throughout um, different parts of the colonial world by British doctors in India, by French doctors in Algeria, by doctors in the Caribbean that would broadly be classified as, as colonial medicine. Um, of course, the Pasteurians don't like to remember themselves as part of colonial medicine. You've said they'd like to emphasize their... Um, relationship with local rulers, but is there something different there? Was there something different about uh, the on-the-ground practices of the Pasteurian institutes, uh, say, in the Middle East, um, than the other colonial medical institutions uh, that were there? In fact, I think there, there is a, 
narrow link between colonial medicine and the Pasteur Institute. Uh, you had what they called the médecins de colonisation, colonial doctors, who were supposed to go to the countryside yeah. and uh, to take care of the population. But they also had to be trained, and usually their training was through the Pasteur Institute. I see. Either in Paris or in the local version, like in Algiers or Tunis. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a strong link also the other side. I mean that uh, these uh, medical doctors, these colonial doctors could collect observations and specimens and they brought them back uh, to the mother sure. to yeah. the mother institute. For example, the, the venom of scorpions. Mm -hmm. Scorpions, the venom was uh, being brought from the desert to the institute and the institute were producing in Algeria and in Tunisia right. as well serum to protect the population against the scorpion bite which could be deadly. Hmm. I mean and that's an always that's an always that's always a point we have to reiterate in the history of uh uh medicine is that even as medicine is you know held up as a a product of uh, scientific discoveries in the West, there's all these material links to, of course, the colonial world, extending not only to, say, the venom of the deserts, but even contact with uh, local healers would be, um, uh, you know, bearers of superstition who are yet actually, if, if we look at some of the research on history of medicine, uh, informing um, Pasteurian and other doctors in various ways. I think that is something which is still very vivid. Uh, recently, I had some colleagues who talked to the people in the street about the Pasteur Institute in Tunis, and what they recall is the fact that they had Syrah for Scorpio bites. So it's something which uh, struck the imagination, the yeah. people's imagination. And it's probably... Uh, the distinctive mark of the Pasteur Institute it's this link with public health yeah. and the application of research mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of the population and that makes the situation of the Pasteur Institute today difficult mm -hmm. because they have to posit themselves in a context which has been completely transformed by the rise of the medical schools, uh, also the rise of other institutes of research, yeah. the institutes of epidemiology. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, relying on uh, its glorious, on their glorious histories, the Pasteur Institute still have to find a new position mm -hmm. while benefiting from the legacy of history. Mm -hmm. And for those who are listening and want to, are, you've kind of gotten interested in the subject of this, which is really a fascinating network of, of doctors that are part of a, uh, a movement that's going on, uh, that, that being the Pastorians. Uh, what are some of the sources, especially for study of, of uh, international institutes that are in countries of the Middle East and North Africa or elsewhere? Where can people research? The, what are the primary sources for this? Uh, subject. Oh, you have many places, of course. You have in Paris uh, the Department of the Archives, who, which is very well organized mm -hmm. and uh, which provides uh, constantly new material because mm -hmm. they are still collecting documents uh, among mm -hmm. the families yeah. and uh, encouraging people to bequeath 
uh, the personal belongings. Right. And uh, I had visited there with our Autumn History podcast colleague, Sam Dolby, and that archive is organized by doctor, right? So each Pasteurian disciple has their own uh, heading in the archive with their own boxes. So it's kind of linked to the personages of the individuals and the way it's organized. But you still have also documents in uh, many places. Yeah. Uh, except that uh, it's not uh, as well organized in it. It depends on each institute. Mm -hmm. For example, the, the institutes in Tangiers mm -hmm. recently reopened its doors. Ah. And unfortunately, there was a sad period where it closed its doors and it was probably um, looted. Oh. So, uh, it means that... Uh, Even the furniture has mm -hmm. been taken, and probably all the documents are have been scattered or destroyed. So that's maybe an, an exception. But Tangiers had a very unfortunate history because Tangiers became uh, completely uh, apart from the kingdom of Morocco, mm -hmm. and King Hassan II had a personal dislike against this region. Tangiers mm -hmm. and the reef yeah. mountains close to it where there was a strong opposition to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, this unfortunate episode of the Tangiers Institute reflects mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the personal, uh, the personal, uh, Hassan II, uh, personal dislike yeah. to the region. Now, with the reopening of Tangiers, we have a new phase of the Pasteur Institutes in Morocco. Mm. So uh, it illustrates once more how these uh, institutions are important for sanitary diplomacy mm -hmm. and global health. Yeah. And for those who don't have the chance to go to these archives, whether, whether in Paris or in various countries of the Middle East, the Pasteurians were also very prolific in terms of publishing um, sort of journals and uh, publishing the latest current activities and findings. And those should be widely available to researchers around the world. And you have to remember also that the network, you mentioned the network, and there is a yeah. whole discussion about the origin of the word network. Uh -huh. It was not used before, let's say, the 18, uh, 19, uh, 1980s. Yeah. So very late. Uh, before, uh, one talked about the associate pastor institutes. Mm -hmm. But it was mentioned that it functioned as a network, but the name network was not official. Yeah. It, become, it became official in the last decade of the 19th century, of the 20th century, yeah. sorry. And now, of course, after uh, 2003, it became formalized as the International Network of the Pasteur Institutes, where it is important to emphasize that there is an equal relationship between the institutes hmm. in the world. It's not centered on Paris. I It's see. a real network. And as you know, sociologists of science have shown that network is a, a concept very useful yeah. for establishing a new relation between people and institutions. Yes, and it's very interesting that, for example... Example, I guess the official recognition recognition of this network by the Pasteur Institute comes after actually Bruno Latour's work, for example, on uh, the uh, Pasteurians uh, that was published in the late 80s. So it's a so, sort of someone who's talking a lot about networks and here, I guess, the Pasteur 
yeah, go ahead. And I have a question for you. Yeah. Being given the importance for diplomacy of these scientific institutions, uh -huh. can you say something about the future of a Pasteur Institute in Istanbul? That's an episode which could uh, illustrate the relationship between uh -huh. Turkey and uh, scientific Europe. Mm. I think there is something to to bet on the uh, building of a Pasteur Institute in Istanbul. Yeah, and at least it's my uh, wish. Well, that's a that's a very uh, good note to close our interview on. Uh, Uh, thank you so much for, for talking to us today, uh, sharing you know, some of your research on uh, the history of medicine, uh, both in France and in uh, the Ottoman Empire and, and North Africa. Uh, it's been a real treat to have you on and, and also to be hosted uh, um, he, right here in Paris to discuss uh, this topic right in the center of the action where a lot of the historical developments we've discussed today have taken place. Thank you so much, uh, Anne-Marie Moulin, for being here. Thank you to you. We want to thank our listeners for sticking with us to the end of this extended interview with Anne-Marie Moulin about the Pasteurian Institute, uh, about the Pasteur Institute and its international network. We want to remind you that there's a bibliography on our website where you can find uh, our guest publications as well as the publications of other author authors either mentioned in this podcast or relevant to today's discussion. Um, I want to alert you all to look forward to further installments in our special series on the history of science curated by Nir Shafir. Uh, I want to thank you once again for tuning in, invite you to join in next time, and until then, take care. Mm -hmm.